you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, the global phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas. And an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best. Follow the evidence in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS. A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this like lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. I'll give you an example, I'll show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of the cosmic So let me see if I can thread this needle. Um, this is Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. I, I've been thinking a lot this week about um, an event, this thing uh, between me and my sister, at a, um, um, a uh, like a, it's a it's just, it's a specific memory I have of her um, of just her and me and I I don't have a lot of those um, so the ones that I do have I tend to kind of think about a lot and kind of roll the tape in my head over and over again kind of replay them but this one specifically I I might have mentioned it before but um, specifically uh, like Teresa loved to bike ride right and so then. You know, as she got more and more involved and dedicated in, I guess you'd call it a sport. I mean, today it's, it's ubiquitous, but then it was kind of, it was, uh, it was not as, um, uh, you know, prominent as, as, as it is today where everybody uh, bike rides. I mean, when I'm doing this podcast, I look out the window to my right and I can see hundreds of bikers, bike, you know, cyclists on road bikes going by uh, my house on a weekend because I'm sort of like the last exit before you get to the country roads um, here in Chapel Hill, Carborough, North Carolina. So it's, um, but back, back then, you know, it wasn't as prominent, you know, so it seemed like something very unique to her. And, um, so, of course, so she had this road bike, this beautiful bike, a Batekia bike. Um, and so naturally I had to get a bike. So then I I had like a, I mean, her bike was all tricked out. It was like the top of the line for its era. I think it cost her like 500 bucks, which was a lot of money in like 1975, 76. Uh, and then I got like a Peugeot bike, road bike, a black Peugeot. And Teresa liked to go on bike rides and, but you know, but <laughs> and by that I mean like marathon sessions. I mean, nowadays it's nothing. It, people think nothing of riding a hundred miles. But back then that, that was that was a little again a little unusual. Um, so one day we we went um, together from Pierrefonds on the West Island of Montreal, and we rode out all along. I think it's Gouin, Gouin Boulevard. Um, up to St. Jean, past St. Charles, uh, all the way to St. Anne de Bellevue, which is really out there. It's like really on the, the western tip of the island of Montreal or just off the island. I, f I forget, but um, 
it's one or the other. Someone is going to, some joker is going to text me or something and say, it's on the island or you got it wrong. You know, I'm going from memory, bub. So just uh, <clears throat> bear with me. So we go all the way to San Anne to Bellevue. I remember we stopped at this diner, you know, and, and went to this booth. And, and remember how, you know, like back in the, in the day, like in the 70s, uh, uh, a booth in like a diner would would have its own individual jukebox, right? And you could put in a quarter or a nickel or something and, and play songs. Um, so we're sitting there, and I, th- I think we had like I think we had like both ordered a cherry coke because this place was unique in that you could actually get a cherry coke there, which was again something that not as prevalent today you can get any flavor but uh, you know like one of the one of the 10 places on the island of montreal we could get a cherry coke so um we're sitting there and of course we're putting coins in the in the jute box um and i just I remember specifically um i mean i associated this with uh, uh paul mccartney and wings it just like my memory is that that day was all about listening to songs by Paul McCartney and in, in Wings. So hold that for a second. Um, and I don't know why that that particular aspect of the day, you, you know, keeps rolling around in my in my head. Um, so just bear with me here. So also this week, I'm communicating with Christian uh, Gravener. And if you recall, I think Christian Gravener was on very early in the podcast. He's this guy in Montreal, uh, kind of a, a raconteur of Montreal tales. He uh, He's a writer. He used to write for the Montreal M- Mirror. Uh, but he's also in, in real estate. And I believe his father was in Montreal real estate. And because of that, geographically, Christian knows Montreal really, really well. Um, and he's, you know, he's been doing this, this kind of stuff for, for, for decades, um, really well respected in Montreal. So when I, when I have a, a problem unique to Montreal, particularly about a place or, or um, again, geography or anything like that, I usually go to Christian if the question surrounds the island of Montreal. And, and I did um, have this issue. Uh, if you also recall, we talked last um, year about the case of Jocelyn Hull. She's the woman who disappeared from the old Munich, uh, umpapa German, uh, you know, beer gardens pub, um, and wound up in a uh, in a field in the woods in Saint Calixte. Well, I've been doing a little more work around Hull. Uh, and, and, and I knew for a fact that that the night she disappeared, she'd left the old Munich, right? And she's walking with friends um, towards a club up on St. Catherine called um, La Calache. And so my question specific to Christian was, hey, Chris, can you tell me, because you know everything, in back in 1977 was uh, le calache a strip club is that what it is and and so i sent him this text and immediately i i wrote hey chris if it's in your new book his his book is called montreal 375 i said if it's in your new book um and you say you'll have to buy the book um that's fine that's fair um, and, and but of course he's a gentleman. He's a nightmare. He's like, no man, you don't have to do that. And sure enough, within ten minutes he gets back to me and he's like, yep, La Calache was a strip club. There you go. Um, and th- that, um, well, I'll get back to that. But as a courtesy, I I thought you know Chris's book um, had recently come out. I think the first of the year, and I hadn't bought it. So I, I immediately said, hey, don't be a jerk. Go buy his book. So I bought it on Amazon. This book, uh, Montreal, 375, Tales of Eating, Drinking, Living, and Loving. And it, I, actually, I got it yesterday, and you know, I fell asleep reading it. It's so damn great for anyone who who loves, you know, Montreal and nostalgia and, the, you know, that era. 
the 70s. And he, he's got it broken out into sections. A section on bars, on restaurants, hotels, sports, um, geography, transportation. It's really, it's really, it's um, not only did it bring back a ton of memories, it's really well written. It's, it's got a Damon Runyon feel to it. I mean, he, you know, he'll just, he just gives like maybe a page on places like the Orange Julep or, you know, Schwartz's Deli, Ogilvy's, the Ogilvy um, department store. And he just packs within that paragraph or two a ton of information. So anyway, I'm reading this and we're, we're, we're threading back to McCartney now. And he's talking about this this strip club named Smitty's, which was on uh, Sherbrooke Street from 1968 to 75. And sure enough, I'm going, you know, he's talking about how it was a hangout for West End gang recruits, you know, strippers, uh, you know, rowdy customers, you name it, pool tables. And then he's got this, he's got this passage where it says, um, the jukebox offered a half dozen songs from McCartney's Band on the Run album. <laughs> I was like, well, hey, there it is. And that's exactly what we, we, were, we were listening to. I mean, what I, what I specifically remember listening to was um, like, you know, there are a lot of singles off that album, uh, certainly Band on the Run. But the, I think the second single was Jet. And the flip side... The B-side to Jet was Let Me Roll It. And I remember we we played, and Let Me Roll It, you know, people know, what do they know? They know Jet, they know Band on the Run, they, uh, they know Bluebird. A lot of people forget Let Me Roll It. But I remember specifically that day um, listening to that song in that booth with Teresa in St. Anne de Bellevue way back in what, if I were to guess, was probably uh, 1975, 1975. We're going to call this kind of a update review episode. It's it's not really the episode I wanted to, to do. I, um, I took last week off because I was doing some research on some cases, and I found a lot of, like like the next show is going to be really good, <laughs> but I'm waiting for some information, some confirmation on some, on some things uh, that I don't have yet. And it's just going to be more, um, it's just going to be more satisfying and, and rewarding if we wait. Um, some of it is, um, some of it is, Oh, this is, and I just got, I just got what I wanted from, from the Quebec archives. They just, they just this minute emailed me an autopsy report that I've been waiting for. It's one, it's one piece of the puzzle. I got a couple others coming in, um, and um, it's really exciting. Uh, some of it involves, um, well, all of it involves many of the cases we talked about last year, and just again, kind of, you know, threading the needle. Um, tying up some loose ends and some other informations that are compelling. Um, and um, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a case solved. I, I'm sorry. Um, but there's some additional information about some of those cases um, that uh, tell a different story. And we'll, uh, as soon as I can confirm it, uh, I will, but, but you know, not, not to leave you hanging. Obviously, one of them is the Jocelyn Hull case. Some of the information surrounding that, the Saint Calixte case, and some of it in, involves uh, the Catherine Hawks case, uh, and tying up some some loose ends with that. But for now, you'll just have to wait. Sorry. Um, um, one other thing I will say, Sasha Reed is helping me on this ma matter. Um, we, we think we found an, an interesting signature um, with a couple of the murders, um, and th that's her area of expertise, not me. So she's 
uh, agreed to do some work on, on that end for us, which is exciting. And um, not only is she an extremely nice uh, woman, um, she's very fast um, and uh, with getting back and following up on things. But for now, <clears throat> I'm going to give you uh, some different updates on some things. Um, so the Sarté de Québec's cold case website. Recall the, the cold case unit in the, with the Sarté de Québec. The, there wasn't one. Um, and then after the Teresa Lore series came out uh, 16 years ago, they created one with five officers, and then recently they added another 25 to it. So they've really beefed it up. Um, and I think they're aggressively going after things. They must be. Because for some reason, I went to the website uh, um, last week to confirm something. I don't know what it was. And, and what was had been familiar all of a sudden kind of knocked me off my feet. I, um, I looked at the page. You know, it's, it's alphabetical, right, the way that all the cases are there. So the first or second one is Teresa Lohr. And then to my surprise, right under her, uh, freshly um, posted is the case of Denise Bazinet. And it you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, and recall, this: the, the Bazinet case, is, she disappears at a street corner um, in the east end of Montreal. She turns up near Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu, um, halfway between Sherbrooke and, and Montreal. And this is a huge victory for me. I mean, I've been pressing them for this case for a long time um, to, to legitimize it, right? And not to blow my own... Well, no, I'll blow my own horn. Um, prior to me writing about Des, uh, Denise Bazinet, um, which was, you know, I, f I first wrote about it like five years ago and in a piece called Who Was the Bootlace Killer? Because she had been strangled, among others. Uh, so prior to that, if you had have Googled Denise Bazinet, you'd come up empty, nothing, wiped, no information whatsoever. That name doesn't register at all. And then slowly after the bootlace killer uh, um, piece I wrote, more people started to pick up on it. But what they were really picking up on is they were, you know, it's like a game of telephone, right? They they were retelling my story. So then it, then it gets, you know, as it becomes a piece of the puzzle in Steph Perrin's um, uh, movie, um, Cette Femme. And then more and more people start writing about it. But its origins, frankly, were with me. Um, not not that it wasn't legitimate. I, I had I had discovered articles in Allo in Allo Police, um, which had been forgotten. Um, so for the Certe de Quebec to come out and and post this information made it official and legitimate. Because I mean, even though it was always official, you you do have this sense that you know, is this shit just going on in my head? I mean, did I make all this up? And it's even though you, you know, you read documents on it. I mean, I read her autopsy report. Um, you know, your mind plays tricks on you. And you it, so then when the, you know, the Sarté de Québec acknowledges it like that is is a huge victory. Right. Um, but that's that's not all. So I, I go, OK, what else have these these brilliant clowns done? So I'm looking at the, the site and who pops up but Melanie Cabet. <laughs> there she is. Now, we spent several episodes talking about um, Cabet and pondering about why they wouldn't post such an important case when there had been a press release from the Certe de Quebec not 10 years ago on it. Uh, we kind of speculated, well, maybe it's because they knew Claude LaRouche killed her. There was no point putting a whole lot of effort behind something that could never be resolved. But, I mean, within weeks of that podcast where, where I, we questioned why Quebec wasn't on the Certe de Quebec site, up, up she came. 
there she was. Amazing. But that's not all. Who is now on the cold case website? You will not believe it. Manon Dubay. Now, Manon Dubay was the third part of the triangle that formed the the origins of the Who Killed Teresa case. There was, of course, Teresa Lore and Louise Cameron and Manon Dubay. And in many ways, Dubay was the trickiest one, right? Uh, Cameron, there was no doubt she was murdered. She was found with a bootlace around her neck. Allure, um, the circumstances suggested a murder. I mean, she was found naked, um, you know, next to the the road. Dubay was, as I say, a little a little more slippery because this was a child who was found face uh, a child uh, f- found face down in a frozen stream, fully clothed. So the authorities had a they had a difficult time with this, and um, you know. W- in 2001, they reopened it, the, the case. They put a lot of effort into it, the Sarté de Québec, into Dubay. Um, they quickly had to close the matter because they ran out of funding and re- resources. Um, but I know the investigators from that 2001 reinvestigation, and they were thoroughly convinced uh, that Dubay was, as we've talked about many times, a hit-and-run victim. Um, got hit by a car, um, <laughs> As Kim Rosmo says, hit and run, eh? Um, with a hit and run, you hit, you run. You don't hit, put the body in a car, drive 10 miles south, dump the body, secluded in the woods in a stream, and then fuck off back to Sherbrooke. So this was the trickiest one. And then we also said that um, how could how could the Sarté um, de Québec ignore this when the the initial coroner's investigation on Dubay, we found out uh, last year, um, had suggested that she was the victim of uh, a sexual murder. Now, we don't know his reasons for that conclusion, but it's pretty clearly documented in the report. So so now, you know, after 16 years, and, and believe me, anytime I talk about Dubay, if it came up with the police... We're not going to, you know, you know, no one wanted to go there. And I even people, people I know, like reporters or other, you know, people in the criminology field, they are they always kind of, you know, when I bring up Dubai, there's like a smirk on their face. It's like, uh, come on, John, that's a bridge too far. Clearly, that case, that case isn't connected. Right. Well, how now, brown cow? Listen to this. This is so it says. Manon Zubay, there's her picture. On March 24th, 1978, the body of 10-year-old Manon Dubay was found by a passerby in Massawippi Creek in the village of Massawippi, also known as Errors Cliff. She was last seen on January 27th, 1978, with her sister while the two girls were returning from a friend's house. According to the information collected, the victim, Manon Bay, disappeared at the corner of Craig and Union Streets in Sherbrooke. Any information that may help resolve this crime can be sent to the Certe de Quebec Criminal Information Center at blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, yeah, hardy, har, har, who has the last laugh? Me, fella, that's who. So in, in looking at the website and in comparing it to, um, you know, the sticky page on my website about related and unsolved murders and disappearances in Quebec in the 70s, um, I mean, this phase of the work is, is now pretty much complete. Every major, not major, every case that I was interested in that was under the Sarté de Quebec's uh, jurisdiction um, with a focus, a, a concentration on the, you know, specifically 75 to 81, is now up there. Uh, they're, they're all um, currently very active, um, very transparent, Sartre de Quebec cold cases. There's a few uh, outliers that I'm not going to quibble about. Uh, obviously, the 71 case of Alice Parr, um, you know, I don't think it's related to any of the matters I'm talking about. As we've always said, I, I, I thought it set more an example 
um, for the systemic problems with the Certificate of Quebec, you know, much it had more to do with that for me, and that it was a harbinger or you know something announced a prescient matter, um, um, you know, kind of sinisterly foretelling what was to come. So it had it had more symbolic meaning for me. And the, the, you know, the other one I talked about is Claudette Poirier from 77, young kid from Drummondville, Poirier also from Drummondville. So maybe something there. But, you know, I only had a, a secondary interest in those cases, uh, not a specific investigative interest in those cases. So, so um, as I say, this at this point, we're good. They, Certe de Quebec, took them, you know, 10 years, but. Uh, everything I was interested in is is now up there. What is um, frustrating is in looking at them, of course, you can never get a complete picture of things because you don't have the other cases there together. You know, there's no there's no central depository of, uh, of cold case information and, you know, for Quebec or, or that region. And I suppose the more and more you want it, you want it from more regions. You know, let's add Canada. Let's. Let's add, um, you know, the United States. Um, but there isn't anything, you know, there isn't anything like that. But it's frustrating for the cluster we talk about because, uh, you know, for instance, in the case of uh, Denise Bazinet, uh, okay, she was found off the island of Montreal, but it's helpful to give it context and say, but wait a minute, she lived in the east end of Montreal was practically neighbors of um, Les Amblés, right? Um, uh, but, you know, you can't put that together because Blay was found murdered in her, you know, in her backyard in Montreal. So that's the Montreal case. And the Montreal p- police have yet to provide any significant information on, on cold cases from this era. I mean, maybe they'll get there, but they're certainly... They're certainly not here. They're, they're certainly not there yet. How many million miles Now, the other thing that happened this week is um, 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 a friend of mine, um, Heidi, who runs like a grassroots victims um, group in Ottawa, brought to my attention that, remember that position, the federal ombudsman for uh, victims of crime in Canada that I, as we all know, I applied for that position. I interviewed in the summer. Um, Well, it stood vacant for six months. They they haven't they haven't filled the position, which is astonishing. I mean, when she brought that to my attention, my immediate reaction was, "My God!" I began the application process for that position uh, like a year ago. A year ago, you know, this this month is when I began all the the work on that. Um. How could how they could let such an important position atrophy is uh, astonishing, um, and so then <clears throat> a, a number of um, advocates began to get very very vocal on Twitter. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, Madame uh, Justice Minister, when are you going to fill the ombudsman position, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And then i i got uh, I got fed up, and you, you know I've 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 been pretty uh, mum about that experience. I've said a few things, but then 
You know, when I learned this, I just was like, you know what, man, the gloves are off. I, uh, I don't, I don't care anymore because I wouldn't take the position anyway. Um, I, I really don't care about insulting the federal government of Canada. I live in the United States. Um, you want me, come and get me. So <laughs> that's kind of childish, I know. But, you know, you get so tired of this shit. You know, the my, my, my dad said this to me this week. He said, you know, at some point I said to him, you know, how did you put up, you know, with this circus of buffoons? And he, he said to me, he said, John, look, if if life is anything, it is a series of setbacks. That's what what life is. And he said, just just take Sinatra's advice. Pick yourself up. Get back in the race. And I was, I, and that's good advice. So I was like, you know what? Um, I may burn a bridge here, but I'd already burned the bridge. To tell you the truth, the, the whole episode with them, the reimbursement of my travel expenses—I mean, I didn't tell the half of it, and I don't say the half of it in this what I wrote. But um, you know, I sent some flaming emails to them, um, not and not even to them, which is you know, it it went to some you know third line functionary staffer, you know, some functionnaire. Uh, you know, it certainly didn't go to Justin. Um, but some, sometimes you just feel so helpless. You just, you got to scream. So, you know, I screamed in November and then, uh, this week I, I was a little more, uh, I shaped my, my message a, a little more and I'll, I'll, I won't read all of it, but I'll read from what I posted. Um, it's been exactly one year since Justice Canada first advertised for the ombudsman position. The former ombudsman, Sue Sullivan, had announced she would be retiring in August 2017. The negotiation resulted in her staying on for additional three months. This seemed like a great opportunity to correct the appointment from the Harper era. Now, if you don't know, O'Sullivan was like a former police chief, and... <laughs> I don't think, can you imagine a more appalling representative for victims of violence than a, a former law, law enforcement officer? I can't. Um, and I remember when I when I did some research on her and, you know, most NGOs, you know, you, you go and you look at their social media feeds and, you know, it's it's the usual suspects. It's the, the right people they're engaging with. O'Sullivan's Twitter feed was was all... All she was doing was networking with other Leos, right? And um, and you know, like even beyond that, the, the Office for Victims of Crimes Twitter feed was was horrible. I mean, all they were doing is pushing out information on their um, on their accomplishments, you know. And it was like a one sided conversation, you know. I I'm I'm particularly bad at social media. Uh, particularly Twitter, but I do know how it's do, how did it's done correctly, and it it's an engagement process. If if you say something and someone comments on it, you're you're virtually if 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 you want to be successful at engagement, you would have to at least acknowledge that, and uh, you know you don't have to comment on anything, but you do have to acknowledge. You got to like it or something like that. Otherwise, it's a one-way conversation and people stop engaging. And how that office, such an important grassroots office whose responsibility is to engage with victims, you know, miss that is, is beyond me. But anyway, I, uh, I digress. Um, some associates and victims advocacy suggested I should apply for the job. I thought they were joke, joking, and I basically responded, they'd never let me run the office the way I want to. And the response from them was was quick and un unanimous. They said, that's why you should apply for the job, John. And so then, in like, in reviewing my um, qualifications and what they were looking for, I found, you know, that I was, I was really, really well suited for the position. We won't get into why. Anybody who's listened to this podcast knows why. 
But uh, and then I had really good, you know, letters of recommendation. I had representation from British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, uh, of course, Quebec with Pierre Boisvenu. Um, so I, I, I started the uh, application process. You know, I, I knew I knew I had some challenges, like on specifically on policy issues. You know, I was um, I was a little rusty on things like the Criminal Code, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Corrections and Conditional Release Act, things like that. But you know, I I took the time and I studied them. So, and um, and, and here's some stuff I've not talked about. So, in beginning this process with them, uh, like, you know, they weren't they weren't going to just interview me. I I was going to study them you know, to assess whether this is something I really wanted. And the, so the first thing I did is I sent them a couple of emails, like, to, you know, to their intake, playing the part of, you know, victim, um, to just to see what their customer service was like, you know, naturally. Um, and I, ga- I gave them some like really softball pitches on these things. Like the, the first question I asked them was sort of like, hello, office of ombudsman. Um, do you have a strategic plan? You know, and and I was immediately met with no, we don't have a strategic plan, and it's like, nah, <laughs> wrong, wrong answer. You do have a strategic plan. Now, granted, it's embedded in Justice Canada's strategic plan, um, and furthermore, it like it's stale dated. It's like this relic from the Peter McKay era, of the Harper era, the conservative era like from the early Peter McKay uh, era. So it's really stale. Um, and for me, like, I mean, it's just fundamental, right? If you don't have a strategic plan, what are you doing? How do you know where you're going? How do you know you're, you've arrived when you get there? These kind of things. And, and the other thing is, you know, you, you can't have a strategic plan sitting on a shelf collecting dust. It, it is is a dynamic uh document right it's a living document that where you're constantly assessing and measuring yourselves and then correcting the process right um so it's got to be updated frequently right and and the goals and the priorities frankly should be coming from like um, victims and the community of victim stakeholders this kind of thing so the the second matter and this is a little trickier but it involved the 1977 Montreal murder of Catherine Hawks. Um, and um, <laughs> so to, to kind of break this apart, murder cases are usually, you know, obviously we've said this matters for um, provincial and local law enforcement in Canada. But as you know, the Hawks case was really unique. Um, she was murdered at a CN railway station. And so this CN, Canadian National Railway, is on federal land. So the cold case for a time was assigned to the RCMP. And because it was assigned to the RCMP, this meant that the office of the ombudsman did have jurisdiction and authority um, in assisting any victim inquiry about the Hawks case. So... um, Representing uh, Hawks's cousin, who, I, who I've worked with a long time, I made an inquiry to the OVC. I, what I basically said to them was, uh, I'm not getting anywhere with the RCMP on this matter. Every time I contact them about it, they just ignore me. Can you please, federal ombudsman, intervene? And again, this is what I got back. I got... Thank you for communicating once again with the office, once again, with the office of the Federal Ombudsman for Victims of Crime. Any matters or issues pertaining to the RCMP, I would encourage you to communicate with them, given they would be in a better position to answer your questions and or direct you to the best resources. Wishing you well, Mr. Allure, and finding resolution. <laughs> yeah. So there it is. That's that's um, that's your ombudsman at work right there. Right. Not not even a sense or an attempt at curiosity about, you know, what efforts have you made or um, suggestions uh, for dealing with 
an organization that would obviously probably have an obstinate reputation, the RCMP. Um, so, you know, this is how I began the application process. And it was not um, looking particularly well. And uh, what I can say is um, things got things got worse. Um, you know, and in looking over their materials, the first thing I noticed is that their annual report was really awful. I mean, the the, the format had basically been cut and pasted from the Steve Sullivan era uh, when Steve was the first victim's ombudsman. There was no attempt to, to kind of grow with the times. I mean, Sullivan, O'Sullivan, don't confuse them, Sue O'Sullivan had been in the position for almost a decade. Steve had started it and it only lasted um, like a couple of years before he was turfed by um, Stephen Harper. Um, you know, the whole thing was... Uh, Look at our accomplishments, you know, too many glossy photos um, of the ombudsman. Um, too many videos, frankly, on YouTube of the ombudsman. Uh, who, you know, it's not about the ombudsman. Um, and, uh, and their performance measures were the absolute worst. I mean, if you, if you know this kind of work, I mean, all it was was counting, right? Okay, the number of calls received, right? Number of emails. So every time, you know, like I sent those emails, you, you know, they'd tick it off on a box and begin counting. You know, there was nothing that told you that the the office was moving the needle substantively on victim policy issues, right? I mean, sure, count the stuff, but then use that to say, okay, um, you know, then survey victims and see if they feel more satisfied you know, in their customer relations uh, engagement with the ombudsman, right? I mean, it's 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 kind of fun, fundamental. Um, but um, you know, kind of the last thing that I knew was like this: this was a red flag. Was that the contract for the ombudsman? Um, you were a contract employee. Uh, with an option to for renewal every three years. Um, and for me, it was like, who could possibly advance a serious policy issue uh, under those conditions, under a three-year mandate, right? Particularly if you, if, if, you know, what, what many victims are interested in is getting representation in the court alongside the Crown and the Defender, Right. And the crown, the defender, the victim. Well, if you want to make advances on that, you need a lot more than three years. But but even, you know, even further to that, um, everyone that the ombudsman supervised in that nine person office that they have was a career federal employee. Like they were lifies, lifers in the federal um, you know, bureaucratic system. So if if they didn't like you, or they didn't, you know, particularly find attractive the direction you were moving uh, the organization. They could simply wait you out, man. So, like in those conditions, you weren't they. Your employees weren't working for you. You were going to be working for them. Um, <laughs> um, so, just uh, a little more here. My uh, my suspicions and hesitancy were confirmed when in mid June. I was contacted by the Office of the Privy Council and asked to travel to Ottawa for a formal interview. Um, I was still sincere about taking the position, and um, I wanted to give them a chance to maybe explain or, uh, you know, some of my perceived issues and challenges with the position. Um, so, uh, so as, as you know, this interview took place in uh, in Ottawa at the. Uh, Privy uh, Council office on Wellington. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a fairly canned and stiff affair, like five woman panel, you know, and then this round robin process of asking questions with people scribbling, you know, quick notes between questions and obviously giving you a score, you know, and I'm, I'm familiar with that process. It's one I've used all my life, but I, I do know this, that occasionally you want to open things up right? And delve into specifics. Like for me, if I have a candidate in the room and I feel 
an answer that they gave requires a little more mining that me and my, you know, my interview staff, we, we have permission to go off script, right? And probe these kind of things. It's the only way you're going to get uh, a qualified candidate. Um, but the, the, there was none of that in the, uh, in the justice and privy in the federal process of hiring in Canada, right? It was all strictly by the book, a one hour rigid time, right? And, and it felt kind of like they were just going through the motions. Frankly, at the time, I thought they had probably, they'd probably already found a candidate from the way they were behaving. I was like, oh, they've already seen someone they want and they just got to, you know, wait, wait for me to leave and then they're going to hire them. But, but that's clearly not, the case because the position hasn't been filled for six months, right? Um, and you know the the absolute worst thing was the French question. Now, all candidates had been peppered and telegraphed like beyond belief with this question. They must have emailed like two or three times and said, "Okay." I just want you to know in the interview, there's going to be a question in, you know, in French um, uh, and you're going to have to answer it. And but then they said they qualified it. They were like, but you don't have to answer the question in French if you don't want to. You can, you can answer it in English. Right. So we get in the room and, you know, before the panel and, and you you would have been an absolute idiot not to know that the woman on the panel with a heavy French accent was the one who was going to pitch you the question. Right. And, and when she finally lobs it at me, I can't remember what it was, but when it finally comes, it's like at slow motion speed, right? As if, as if I'm in kindergarten or something. And then, and then again, they say, you know, you can respond in English. And why the fuck would I want to respond in English? Right. I mean, if I, if, if I'm, if I'm the ombudsman of Canada, right, then communicating in French is a must. And if I can't communicate in French, I have no business representing victims, uh, all victims, as the ombudsman of Canada. I mean, it, it, this kind of stuff drives me crazy. Um, anyway, uh, in, in the course of the interview, I did, you know, manage to communicate to them what I was capable of accomplishing in three years. Like, I, you know, the, four, the O'Sullivan spent an awful lot of time, like, on travel junkets, you know, going to The Hague or Australia. Uh, not that those things aren't important, but they're suspicious, right? When you go on these things, maybe go once in your lifetime. You don't have to go every year. And I really wasn't interested, you know, in, in traveling around, although I think I think one-on-one engagement is important. I wasn't going to dress up in a suit and and show up and hand out pamphlets and shake hands. It just was not, I do a little of that, um, but it wasn't going to be the only thing that I thought, you know, you're the spokesman, you're the figurehead, so this is what you should do. Uh, incidentally, um, I should stop and say, the federal ombudsman for victims of crime in Canada has never been a crime victim, has never been a crime victim victim so so anyway um i told them i from my opinion that they needed to first canvas and survey victims um and and not only to determine who the victims are because i see that a lot in the surveys that that they they primarily focus on who are the victims but more importantly for me it was like what the victims need what the victims want that's what you should be doing and then you should develop a strategy an action plan, a strategic plan, if you want to call it, um, and something that is independent of Justice Canada's plan. Uh, you establish a few metrics that you can measure, and then you work toward achieving some of those goals, um, you know, in the three years that you have. Um, and I, I said a couple other things. I said if, if, if their expectation was that the ombudsman get involved in the... Uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls process that that I needed complete support and transparency from the Justice Department. You know, I wouldn't taken that on alone. I mean, I certainly wouldn't be taking that on in a three-year mandate. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, and that if they did, if, if I, I told them, if they wanted to advance policy along the lines of victims' 
representation in the court process, then I'd need more time, like a five to seven year old, seven year mandate or contract. Um, when the when the interview is over, I was allowed to ask one question, and then I was like briskly escorted out of the building. It was sort of like you felt literally like you were in a revolving door, and um, you know, in the aftermath, you know, maybe you know, maybe, maybe they just didn't like me, you know. Um, maybe it was clear that I wasn't going to do the things that they wanted to do. That's okay. Um, um, but, you know, from that, you know, very slowly over the course of time, you know, I I, I sort of knew it wasn't going to work, right? I, I mean, I knew, I was pretty firm that given what they were going to pay, I mean, I know the federal pay system that I was going to ask to be reclassed two steps up on the federal pay ladder. And I was going to ask for at least a five-year contract. And I wasn't going to take the position if that wasn't, you know, offered. And, you know, we never got to questions of pay and, and benefits, but had we, that's what I was going to say. Um, and then and then we get to the, the reimbursement thing, um, right? So... I, I traveled to Ottawa on that trip on my own dime with the promise of being reimbursed when I sub- submitted all my receipts. And I submitted all my receipts electronically immediately after coming home in July. And I was told they needed original receipts, which is, oh, fuck off. In this day and age, why do you need original? Why can't I, you, you can't take a PDF of the receipt? That's ridiculous. So nevertheless, I, I I mailed them, right? And I waited and I waited, you know, August passed. I, I wait, I email, right? September, called them, more emails, more waiting. October, I, by October, I'm, I'm told that the whole matter is held up in the Federal Central Accounting Office. Uh, apparently, I... I had submitted a request for reimbursement for $3.50 for a bus ride from the airport, but there was no receipt because I had lost the receipt. Now, you know, at this point, I I just got to stop and I just have to, you know, say this. I had been extremely responsible with all my expenses. I could have taken a limousine to and from the airport that would have cost $60 one way. Uh, That was within their reimbursement rules. I could have stayed at the Chateau Laurier. I stayed at the Elgin because they were having a sale. I I could have charged them for three nights instead of two, but I I didn't think it was fair to charge taxpayers for my additional night that was really all about me going around to museums going to the Supreme Court, sightseeing, this kind of thing. And now the entire process for months has been tied up over a $3.50 bus ride. And, you know, the punchline to the whole thing is that uh, in November, four months after my interview, they finally mailed me a check for all my expenses. Well, well, some of my expenses. Um... I figured that, you know, after anything that I shouldn't charge them for, I, I was out of pocket for the airfare, two nights, hotel, et cetera, meals, about 1200 American, which I uh, requested for reimbursement. What I received was a check for approximately $800 Canadian, roughly half of what I went out of pocket for when I started the whole ordeal. And I couldn't even cash it, right? Because it was a Canadian check, I had to I had to wait till I was I was in Kingston, Ontario, on Thanksgiving. I go to the RBC Bank, I cash it, right? But they only gave me Canadian. So then I got to cross the street to the bank exchange, convert it back into American. In which process, I lose even more money, right? And then you know, in the end, I I, did, I get like this perfunctory email from the Privy Council that basically said that if I had any complaints. I could take them up with the prime minister. (laughs) That's it. That's it, people. That's the Canadian federal justice process at work.
I mean, I, I mean, I'll say this: Canada does deserve a good victims ombudsman, and that the position should not be standing vacant for six months. The need's too important, but it it won't be me. I'm going to end today by threading us back to where we began the beginning of this episode that that booth in that diner in St. Anne de Bellevue. Uh, before I do, let me just say, if you like the podcast, um, review us on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on social media on Twitter and on Facebook. On Facebook, it's Who Killed Teresa, the podcast. On Twitter, it's at Justice Guy, J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y, or at Teresa Lore. So that diner booth, years later, like, what is this, 30, 30 years later? No, less, 20, 20 years later. I guess it was like 1994, and um, I was living in Toronto, uh, you know, starving artist, struggling actor, and um, I, 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 I was I was like out in the western part of of southern Ontario, like around, I want to say, Aurelia or London, something like that, um, and I was making I was making this movie, and. <laughs> by calling it a movie is being extraordinarily generous. What I was actually doing was by, I had this agent at the time and her boyfriend was an aspiring filmmaker. So a bunch of us at the agency agreed to do this film for free. Um, and we shot it out at this farmhouse out in, you know, as I say, out in the country of Southern Ontario it was a horrible experience. It was just, it was just awful. It was uh, soul sucking, and it's like, why do I put myself in these situations, right? And and and, and I, I, there's some high profile people attached to it. I mean, remember Aiden Aiden Devine was in it. Who was a Canadian actor? Uh, Sheila McCarthy was in it. Um, Ron Lee, for years, was on like the show Street Legal. I think I think Dean McDermott, who eventually had the um, auspiciousness to marry Tori Spelling. I, I think Dean was in it as well. <laughs> anyway, it was, it was, it was horrible. And like we, we finished shooting like on a Sunday night at four o'clock in the morning. Um, and it was sort of like, Oh, would you like to stay the night? Right. Cause it was their farmhouse, right. It was the boyfriend and the agent's farmhouse. And I was like, you know what? I really, I was, I was just newly married and I was like, I really want to get home. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, dead tired, um, I started, you know, driving home along the 401, you know, listening to, you know, rock hits on the radio. And I was just so drained and just so demotivated. And the, the one song I wanted to hear was Paul McCartney and Wings Let Me Roll It. It's the only in you know this is back in the this is before Spotify and you know I didn't have a cassette tape of Band on the Run with me anything like that. All I had in the car shitty red Toyota um was was the radio and right and it's it's like commercial FM is what they're going to play, is the, what they're playing. And if they're going to play anything, right, it's probably going to be banned in the, on the run. It's, it's going to be Jet. It's not going to be Let Me let, let me Roll It. Going down the 401, right, you just see, you know, it's like 5 o'clock. You see the skyline of Toronto, on the horizon, you know, in silhouette as the sun is coming up and being overly poetic here, but it's true. This happened all of a sudden, miraculously, what comes on the radio, but let me roll it. I, I mean, I'd never heard that song on the radio. You know, I'd heard it on the record. I'd never heard it on the radio. And suddenly, you know, at my, darkest hour there was a gift from the heavens this has been who killed Teresa 
Have yourselves a great, great afternoon. We did it again. 
Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, the global phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas. And an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best, follow the evidence, in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS.